0: Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you the final Aliyah, the seventh Aliyah of Shoftim, which opens with the rules of war in two types of wars, the Milchemet Reshut, the optional war, and the Milchemet Mitzvah, the war that is required. Now, the former war, the optional war, are waged by a king or a leader against an enemy, usually outside of his territory, and the goal is to expand the territory uh, or his treasury. The latter war, that is the mandatory war, the Mohammed Mitzvah, is where Israel is fighting um, in or for its own borders. In this case, they're fighting these seven nations in the land of Canaan in order to conquer the land and inherit it uh, for their nation. It also would include the war against Amalek, which inherently desires the destruction of Israel, as well as really any war in which uh, Jews or Israel are under a uh, threat of violence or destruction. Now, in the enumeration of the laws of war, there is a very critical ambiguity, which, depending on how you understand it, will affect how Israel was able to wage the war against the seven nations, the mandatory war, while they were conquering Israel. And I will demonstrate that ambiguity as we go through the text. When you approach a city to war against it, you will, you must, this is a commandment, you must offer it a peace option, which of course really means surrender on your conditions option. Or on, I should say, on our conditions option. And should they answer your call for peace, surrender, and open the gates to you. Um, all the nation inside will be yours as a tax. They taxed on money, but they also taxed on people. That is, the conquered nation would have to deliver up a certain amount of people to work in the fields or to build buildings or what have you. So it was kind of a people tax, and they must serve you, which means they must become, that district, that city, that nation, that city-state must become a vassal uh, of yours. But it's important to notice that if they select uh, uh, accepted the terms of surrender, that neither killing nor even taking pr- prisoners not only was done but it wasn't sanctioned at all. However, the imlo imach if they refuse to make peace with you, vaasitai imcha milchama vitzarta aleha um un tanah adonai elohah khabiyadah wa calls wa hikita alkoshurah fi kharav rakanashim wa tava biima wa khul ashia biir kosala tavoz lakh But if they don't make peace with you, they make war with you, then you will besiege them, and when the Lord, your God, gives them into your hands, which seems to be really a promise that God will make you victorious, victorious, possibly because you are following God's laws, is the indication. If you do, then God will make sure you win. You will put all the adult men, meaning the men who actively fought against you, to the sword. However, the women and the children, that is, boys and girls, and the animals, and everything that is in the city, and all its booty, you shall take... All its booty you shall take as spoils for yourself, and you shall eat the spoils that the Lord your God has given you. So far, all is clear for the optional war. If they make peace, nobody has to die. If they don't make peace, then the men who fought against you, the active warrior men, they have to die. Everybody else uh, gets pulled into slavery, and everything becomes booty. Here's where it gets tricky. Cain <inaudible> So should you do to all the very faraway cities, meaning in an optional war that are made outside of your borders, which are not part of these nations, which are not the cities that belong to these nations, meaning the seven Emirate nations that are about to be conquered by the Israelites coming into their land. The problem here, the ambiguities with the word Cain, so shall you do. And the reason why it's ambiguous is... It could be referring to the peace offer or the the surrender offer. meaning, And then the meaning would be as follows. In an optional war outside of your borders, you must offer a peaceable surrender, which if they accept, nobody dies. But that's the peace offer you make to all of the faraway cities. But you may, for a local city, for one of the seven nations, for a mandatory war, you may not offer them an option for peace. And this would be the case if this is true in the war against the seven Emirate nations, in the war against Amalek, etc. This is how Rashi understands it, which is why he asserts that Yahshua sent a peace offer, a letter of peace to the seven nations before he and his Israelite armies crossed into the Jordan River, before the war began and before the rules, these rules went into effect. Why? Because according to Rashi, once they go into effect and once Joshua is in the land actually pursuing war against these local cities, Joshua can no longer offer a peaceful solution. It's not on the table. He would have no choice but to destroy them. On the other hand, Ibn Ezra and the Ramban, and one can infer this is the position of the Rambam as well, essentially pretty much all the other major commentators, say that, do not agree with Rashi. What they say is that the words came to assess, so shall you do, it refers to what takes place after peace is offered and rejected. That is to say, all cities, whether they're near and far, in any type of war, whether it's a Muhammad Rishod or a Mitzvah, they must be offered peace. What changes is, if they reject the peace, then there are two possibilities. If it's a faraway city that you're making war against, and they reject your offer for peace, so shall you do. That is, you shall only kill the adult males, meaning, as I said, the active combatants, but not the women and the children. But if the city that rejected your peace offer is a local city, that is one of the seven nations... And only if they reject the peace offer, then everybody in the city has to die, the women and the children as well. And the Ramban explains why. He says, since the enemy, the local enemy, the enemy that you must get rid of from Israel, is refusing your terms of surrender, which are specifically the rejection of idol worship and other immoral uh, behavior, and their acceptance of, at the minimum, the seven Noahide laws, which will cause them to act morally, if they accept all that then everything will be great. Then if you make peace with them, you don't have to worry about their corrupting your society because they're not a threat. They accepted the conditions of moral behavior inside of your land. But if they reject the peace and you let them live, that means they refuse to give up their behavior, which means eventually they will turn you to that immoral behavior as well, and that becomes an existential threat. So... According to Ra- according to Ramban and and Ezra and what can be inferred easily from the Rambam, you always offer an option for peace. Only if the option for peace is rejected, then there are two possibilities. One possibility, if it's a if it's a mechamet uh, is that only the, the fighting men have to die. Only the men have to die. And if it's a mechamet mitzvah, then everybody has to die. Um, So according to Rashi, the following verse, which I'm about to read, is unconditional. No peace is offered at all. According to the others, the following verse only takes place after peace is offered and rejected. But from these nations, that is the seven nations in Canaan, which the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance, meaning their territory as an inheritance, don't allow, you may not allow any of them to live. Again, Rashi would say, and under all circumstances, and no peace can be allowed. You walk into the country, if they haven't run away by then, or if they haven't accepted your peace before you got to the country, everybody dies. But if in fact, if you take a look at the Rambam's ruling in his uh, Yad Chazakai, in his Mishnah Torah, then he says that even the city of Amalek, that is the seven nations, but not only the seven nations, but even, the, even the, 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 not the city, the people of Amalek, the most hated of all nations, the people that, that always want us to, 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 to be killed, if they accept surrender and comply with Noahide laws, then they are no longer subject to the laws of annihilation. There is no longer a mitzvah to destroy them. So based on how you read this text, on how you understand the 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 term Kenyaaseh, it's not really how you understand the term. It's whether it applies to the first law, which is to make peace, or whether it applies to the second law. If the peace is rejected, then who do you allow to live? So that really affects how you understand how Joshua behaved, how Israel behaved, and how we in general can behave in the land. Uh, of Canaan that we're going to, that uh, that the Israelites had to conquer at that time. And both have their textual merits, which are too complex to go into right now and really require a good blackboard or a whiteboard to show the textual merits of each one and how each one has strengths and weaknesses uh, as far as w- to which this condition belongs to. Um, I personally, as you may have detected, lead towards the Ramban, the Rambam, and the Ibn Ezra, not only because they have the numbers on their side, but because of the next two verses, which the Ramban himself cites as kind of support for his idea. This is the important part. Indeed, you must completely destroy them. That is according to the Ramban, if you offer them peace, and then they rejected it, uh, and they refused to accept the Noahide laws, you have to completely destroy them, that is, women and children too, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Prezites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they not teach you to do all of their abominations, that they do to or for their gods, and you will wind up sinning, you will wind up sinning to the Lord your God. So according to the Ramban, peace is an option, because if they accept the peace, they will reject their abominations and their idol worship, and they're no longer a threat. But if peace is rejected, then all the enemies must be killed, because uh, if they're not killed, then you yourselves will eventually be destroyed because of the corruption that will inevitably set in. Now, obviously, even with the Ramban's approach, the Ramban, the Ramban, Rashi, uh sorry Rambam, uh, Ram uh ram and Ibn Ezra uh which is uh without question a, a more gentle approach, the idea that even up to the last minute uh Jericho could have uh, surrendered peacefully and 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 Jerusalem and all those cities um there's still obviously issues here the uh, even the idea of thinking the idea of killing a woman and children even if they are an enemy and even if they are the worst kind of uh you know pass your kids through fire idol worship. Uh, you know, killing women and children, it's just not an easy issue to get one's mind around. Uh, now, it could be that, I, I think when, when one evaluates this, one needs to understand the way life and society was in the ancient Near East and the level of the abominations that these people were doing. Idol worship today is, in most cases, not the kind of, you know, vicious abominations that idol worship was, uh, uh you know, thousands of years ago, in most cases. Uh, Nonetheless, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to this destruction, uh, complete destruction by uh, Jews of other nations, and uh, it's well worth uh, uh, looking up sources and analyzing the text and pondering it, uh, but this is obviously not the forum. Now the Torah moves on to discuss a specific law regarding how a siege should be handled, since it mentioned besieging a city in the previous section. Now, this coming verse is very difficult, the meaning of the words, the syntax, There's a huge amount of commentary. And and what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to stick to the Ibn Ezra and translate it according to him. Should you besiege a city for many years? Yamim can mean... A day, or it could mean a year, or it could even mean an era, as it probably meant uh, during the uh, six eras of creation, six days, quote, or slash eras of creation. Uh, but here the sense is years. If it meant days, it wouldn't make sense because you wouldn't need to cut down a bunch of trees if you were only there for a few days. So years make sense. Uh, should you besiege a city for many years to make war on it and to capture it, you may not destroy its trees by swinging axes or, 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 then not by swinging axes as opposed to some other action. That is, you may not swing axes against them to destroy them because you must eat from it, that is, from the trees. Uh, so you cannot cut them down, allowing those, that is, the enemy, lavomi <inaudible> panechamatsor, to successfully survive the siege. Why? Ki eitz ha-sadeh. Notice he kind of reverses the wording. That is the way he reads it is Lavomi panecha ba is a prepositional phrase that modifies lo tichrot. And the explanation is ki eitz which he which means according to Ebedez, not that man is a tree of the field, but man needs the trees of the field. That is, man, you're fighting man, need those fruit to rely on if they're going to make war successful for a long time. If they're going to cut down all of their uh, provisions and not have any fruit to eat, then they're going to wind up losing their war, which sort of goes against what God wanted, because he promised that he would make them successful uh, if they follow the laws, rock eats te da the osa ad However, should it be a tree that you know is not for eating, meaning meaning it's not a fruit bearing tree, that type of tree you can destroy and cut down and make it into a siege weapon. Uh, or, or a battlement against the city that makes war on you until it, that is, the city, is brought down. Or perhaps riddita means brought under your control from the word rodet to rule over. Now, the only difficulty with Ibn Ezra's approach is that it seems that God is just sort of giving a good advice: war, don't ruin all your provisions when you're making war. Um, what we would expect from God is instruction on on, on moral requirements. Again, I gave a possible answer above that is there is a moral requirement. Israel is supposed to win the wars that it conducts in the appropriate way if it winds up gaming the system against itself and acting idiotically by uh uh by wiping out all of its provisions and it's really kind of going against what God wants, which is success, assuming that the war has been approved by uh by the sanhedrin it's a just war or a required war, and if they're going to wind up doing a bad job at it then everybody looks bad. So maybe there's a moral aspect to it as well. Um, Rashbam understands it a bit differently, also in a military sense. He changes the word order so that the instruction is that you can cut down certain trees, which trees? The trees that are close to, are in the sadeh, that are in the fields, that is the ones close to the city, which can be used for the enemy to hide behind. And that's how he understands that phrase, lavomi panecha ba matzor, which is okay, but I think it still runs into the problem uh, that, uh, that, you know, it seems more like military advice than Torah advice. But, uh, be it as it may. And now we get to the final law and the final nine verses in this Sidra. It is the famous ritual of the Egla Arufa, the, uh, the calf that has its neck, uh, broken. Uh, hours and hours of lessons could be taught on this. There's a huge amount of material. Uh, it, it's not clear why the closest city must make an atonement for something that it may not have done, that it really wasn't involved in. Uh, there, uh, the whole method of killing the calf is unclear, and breaking why breaking its neck, and the rules regarding the location of the calf, the the strong river. I, I'm not going to clarify these great mysteries better obviously than the great commentators who, who have been writing all along. Obviously what I have to say is not going to be uh, you know, any better and probably will be much worse than all the great commentaries have written and each one kind of has their own opinion and their own approach to how and what and why is taking place. Uh, uh, what I could do, probably the appropriate way to do for, you know, to make this a teachable moment, so to speak, is to go through all the commentators and demonstrate their approaches to the Eglarufa Rufa ritual and how and why each commentator chose his uh, or her approach. But obviously that would take a lot longer than I'm sure you would be willing to listen to. So what I'll do is I'll go through the text and offer some options as I go along and point out some things that I, I guess at or find interesting. Uh, one thing I do need to point out about this section is that we are um, we are talking about um, a person that is murdered? That is the language of this. It's not just a person who died in between the city. This is a person who has been murdered. And the thing which I find strange about, which I, I don't really have a solution for, is that the language is not really murder. The language about this dead guy is really really refers to him as if he died in war, but why the Torah would use such language when it seems to be clear that there's no war going on here. Um, and if it was a war as opposed to murder, that would change the whole moral of the uh, of the story, the whole situation. Murder is not the same as killing someone in the battle. But all the commentators go with the idea that it was murder. Nobody says that it was uh, – nobody that I found anyway says that the, the guy died in a battle. Um and, uh, and therefore I'll stick to the idea, universally accepted, that, uh, it was a murder. But as I'll point out as I go along, it sure looks like war, and I, I simply do not understand why the Torah uses war terminology. Uh, especially considering that this just followed two sections about war, and yet doesn't seem to be about war. So as I said, that uh, there are things that bother me that I simply do not have solutions for, uh, but that should be no surprise given that this is the mysterious Egla Arufa section. So anyway, someone killed this guy, um, but apparently nobody knows who done it. Should it happen that a corpse is found in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you to conquer or inherit fallen in the field. And note the word fallen, no fail, is, is really a military word. It's used to, uh, as somebody who falls in battle in the Torah. But again, I don't understand why it's used here if this is just a murder, not a battle. And it is not known who has struck him down. We don't know who the murderer is. The elders and judges must go out and measure the cities that are surrounding the corpse. Again, the word halal here, the word halal is used that not mates, not a dead person, but a halal. And halal in the Torah, ninety-nine percent of the time, is is generally it's associated with a person who dies in battle. If you could just do a search on the word halal. It's always people who die by the sword in battle. So again, I, it seems to be a, 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 a war death rather than a murder. But again, I, everybody understands this is murder and it certainly makes sense based on what they're about to say. So I'll just leave it as a question that, that bothers me. And the closest city to the corpse, that is, after they measure and figure out which city is closest, will be identified. And uh, the elders of that city will take a calf that has never been worked and which has never been drawn by a yoke. That is, the yoke, Y-O-K-E, is a wooden harness that's placed on an ox. And attached to the yoke was a blade that was used to plow the field. So essentially, this is a calf that has never been uh, a work before. Uh, I guess a calf of some value. And the elders of that city will take the calf down to a strong river that is a river with good flowing water that will never again be worked, that will never be seeded Meaning the banks, uh, meaning the, the banks of that river will never be used for planting wheat and the like, even though it's a very viable location since it's got a good water flow. And they will break the neck of the calf in the river. So, the rationalist commentary see this as, this whole ceremony as a way to publicize the issue so that the murderer can be flushed out. That is, the goal is to flush out the murder. Since we're ruining a great river that we'll never be able to use again, that will bug everybody, especially the owner of the land uh, that the river is on. And that's going to really put upon everybody and create an annoyance, not to mention a big amber alert. Murder happened here. Let's find out who did it. And that way the murder will be resolved. So say the uh, the rationalist commentators such as the Rambam and his murder Him. Others see the death of the cow as kind of a mystical atonement. Uh, for the fact that the murderer will never be found, I guess, and therefore they wash the blood. Um, it, it's the blood goes into the river, gets washed away, and that sort of becomes in place of the innocent blood that was spilled, as if the as if the stain is no longer on their hands. But since it's I guess on the land and in the river, that area can never be worked again in kind of a, a mystical or religious sense. Uh, As far as the proximity of the city, one can make a statistical argument that the closest city was the one with the greatest possibility of housing the murderer. One could say, on the other hand, that the closest city had the responsibility to house this stranger so he wasn't wandering around in the middle of the fields uh, in such a way that he could be murdered and not only murdered but murdered without anybody finding out who done it. Uh, either way, after this procedure, this, this ritual, this kind of pseudo-sacrifice, that was a long way to say, essentially, these two characters, these two groups, El HaChalal, to the corpse, uh they'll wash their hands, Alha The Kohanim of the Levites, who were chosen by the Lord your God to serve him and to bless the nation, that is to say, Yivarech, Hashem and on their instructions will be decided disputes, which here seems to definitely mean Halachic ones and afflictions, such as Tzorat I guess. The Kohanim and the elders. It is these two gro- groups, the elders of the closest city will approach the corpse. Um and wash their hands over the broken-necked calf in the river. And they will respond, that is, to the situation, and say, Our hands did not spill this blood, i.e. the blood of the murdered guy and our eyes did not witness it i.e. the murder atone oh, or, uh, or really forgive perhaps your nation israel uh who you o oh lord redeemed and don't place innocent blood damnaqi which as i mentioned before i think means this horrible injustice of a person being murdered and nobody even knows who did it don't place the responsibility for this injustice uh uh upon us um, the injustice, perhaps, was the fact that they allowed him to wander, but that's not a full enough to really deserve their guilt. So he's saying, please don't put it upon us, the fact that he wound up dead and the blood. It says, vani kaper lahem. That is don't is, I'm sorry, they don't say, don't put the 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 guilt of the blood on us. They say, don't put it on Israel. Israel, on your nation, as if the blood can somehow, the situation can somehow stain not just that city but the entire nation of Israel and the blood will be an atonement for them the vani the, adam now that last part vani Lahem adam uh, the blood will be an atonement for them. It's not all clear whether the Kohanim and the city elders are saying that or whether Moshe and the Torah is summing up that by doing this ritual, the blood of the, uh, of the broken calf will atone for the spilled blood of this wanderer. And the last sentence is also clear as to its, its purpose, that is exactly who's saying it. Most translators say that it's Moshe say, saying it, and he's summing up the whole Egla Rufa ritual, although why we would need to sum up is not clear. Uh, ki and you, i.e., as a result of the ritual, will burn away the innocent blood from your midst. Key here then would be when, if this is a sum up. Key, when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, which would seem to indicate that this whole Arufa Eglar, uh, uh, Eglar ritual is being called what is right in the eyes of the Lord, and when you do what is right on the eyes of the Lord, that is this Eglar ritual, that's when you will be purified from this innocent blood that was spilled. Now, I, Rabbi Liebteg, my teacher, uh, my Tanakh teacher, explained that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really fit that well, because the words... Kita Sashi Arbe and other places in the Torah don't really talk about one specific religious ritual. You really define a more uh, an overreaching uh, religious behavior, which is good. So, um, Ibn Ezra reads it as follows. That is, it's not a summation of, um, of the Egla Arufa, that if you do the Egla Arufa ceremony, then you'll have purified yourself. That, that's done and taken care of. What it's saying is, if and when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, which means maintaining all kinds of moral behavior, all kinds of laws of God, including love and fear of Him, then innocent Blood will be, that is, injustice will be burnt from your midst because things like the egla rufa will never come to pass. That is, if you behave, if you behave in an appropriate way, Moshe is telling them, you'll never have these injustices because nobody will ever be wandering between cities without being taken care of, being murdered by somebody, that no, being murdered by mysterious people. That is, if you act like Avram used to act and, and run after travelers and make sure that they were well cared for, then anonymous people will not be murdered in unsolved crimes, which winds up staining the land. Um, those kind of things, if you behave in a way that is right in the eyes of God, those kind of things simply won't happen. Now, there's a lot more to say on the subject of Eglarufa. This is simply the Ebenezer's approach. But I hope what I've described covers a little bit and uh god willing uh will learn more of it in some future date